0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature, and other things that human beings do well. Join us each week for our conversations and visit our website at christianhumanist.org, where you can email us, read our blog, and order merchandise paying homage to the most important Christian thinkers of the past two millennia. And now, the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer.
1: I can't expect will together when Time is no more. That's not so strange.
2: Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is Nathan Gilmore, assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. And I'm joined from Athens, Georgia, from one of the last remaining offices in the basement of Park Hall by Mr. (laughs) David Grubbs. How are you doing, David?
3: Doing pretty well, sir.
2: All right. And I am joined from Christian Humanist Headquarters in Tallahassee, Florida, by Mr. Michael Farmer. How are you doing, Michael? I'm pretty good. All right. Uh, Here lately on the blog, uh, we have been... A little bit slow, because the beginning of the school year has been keeping us quite busy. However, that said, uh, there are some short takes posts that are pretty interesting to look at. Uh, I've been trying to do the lectionary posts. So keep coming back to Uh We'll keep writing, you keep reading. Give us feedback. We love to hear it. Uh, guys, have we heard from any listeners since last time we recorded?
0: Uh, Not to my knowledge.
2: All right. That's all right. We'll go ahead and move on to the topic. Those of you who have been with us from the beginning might notice some repetition going on here. Uh, We started when we first began recording this podcast with a discussion of Christian humanism. Last week we did a discussion of Christian humanism. And the second week in that first season, I started out with a podcast about an intellectual giant uh, whom I respect deeply and enjoy reading but don't necessarily consider myself his disciple. And, of course, that intellectual giant in season one was John Calvin. This season, season three, second episode, we're going to do another giant of the intellectual life. This time it's going to be the Greek philosopher Plato. Now, to give our listeners less familiar with Plato some background, he's a Greek philosopher, lives in Athens, does most of his writing, in fact, all of his writing, in the 4th century B.C., and really is a mighty influence on Western intellectual life. Now, one of the most common descriptors that people apply to Plato is idealist. Uh, David, can you take a little bit of time to tell us what idealism is, uh, what it has to do with mathematics, and whatever else you'd like to say about idealism?
3: Sure. I'll make a stab at it. Um, I spent... Oh, probably the last day and a half trying to track down my uh, my volume of Plato's dialogue so I could get it from the horse's mouth. I think it's in a box in my in-law's basement. So <laughs> we're going to have to rely on my memory. The theory... You're supposed to put
0: Plato in the high places, David, not the low places. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> anyway. All right. Idealism, idealism uh, sometimes referred to as Plato's theory of ideas or theory of forms. Basically, it works like this. Um, the physical things that our senses perceive are not what is ultimately or most basically real um, because they change and they're imperfect. Um, such meaningful reality as these mutable material things possess is the result of their participation in immutable, immaterial ideas, which are also called forms, as I said, which exist eternally in some kind of higher, some kind of higher world, higher plane. Um, human senses don't perceive the ideas, but our but our minds can grasp them, which is, I think, where the math comes in, um, because it helps to understand what kind of reality Plato thinks the ideas possess. Um, We can do things with numbers that we can't do in the physical world, Um, things like zero (laughs) or or negative numbers. And numbers behave in a way that is beautifully consistent in spite of the fact that they exist as mental concepts and as visual symbols on a chalkboard, right? So math creates the sense of security even though it's pretty much utterly intangible in itself. Um, I think that Plato's theory of ideas is an attempt to get the same kind of certainty in metaphysics as you find in math, um, because not
2: to mention in politics and ethics and every realm. I think
3: right, exactly, um, because the ideas are in the same place where the numbers are. <laughs> sure. I mean, any anything you guys want to add?
0: Y- yeah. Um, one of the more interesting things about his idealism, to me is his theory of learning, which is you already know it all, and when you're learning, you're merely rediscovering it, because before the creation or inhabitation of your soul, you were, a, you were part of this world of ideas. And so all learning right. is kind of remembering. I don't know if I buy it, I don't know if I understand it, but at least it's interesting.
2: <laughs> oh, sure, and of course the image that Socrates uses to describe his own teaching is that he is a midwife of thought, people are pregnant with these ideas that they have forgotten because of their life in the sensory world. Uh, He helps give birth to those ideas.
3: Mm -hmm. And it does kind of make sense, because if if the ideas are apprehendable to the human mind, then, well, isn't the human mind, therefore, of the same kind of thing that these ideas are? And where was it before it was walking around and you know, the stuff that is our body. You know? Oh,
2: sure. I mean, that, this is definitely, and Michael, I, I hadn't even intended to talk about this, but thank you for bringing it up, because this is one of those places where some popular Christian conceptions of childhood are definitely drinking at Plato's well more so than they are drinking from any biblical source, you know, this idea that children somehow remember heaven better than adults do. Uh-huh.
0: Well, Nathan, I think I think everybody listening to this can agree that most of what we call Christianity is just a ripoff of the Greco-Roman narrative anyway.
2: <laughs> Michael, 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 you're you're trying to get me into trouble and it won't work.
0: That's okay. Your next question is going to try to get me into trouble.
2: And it probably well, that's, true, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, Farmer. I mean, that's one of my hobbies, getting you into trouble. Well, let's go ahead and segue into it. I mean, when we talk about Plato, we'd be remiss uh, to have our discussion without at least mentioning his connection to And strong suspicion of Athenian democracy. Um, Michael, I mean, say a bit about how that suspicion came about, the grounds that Plato offers for that suspicion, uh, and whatever else you want to say. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what that's going for, too.
0: <laughs> for the uninitiate, uninitiated, uh, Nathan is trying to get me to go off on a screaming jag about the dangers of democracy. I'm going to try to keep from doing that. And if you want to hear those, there's forbid. other episodes. Heaven forbid. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Plato does not like democracy, which is something I never learned in school. Um, I remember learning... In, like Way back in elementary school, I remember learning about ancient Greek democracy with the pebbles and the whatnot, but they never bothered to mention, to the, the best of my knowledge, that the two most famous Greeks, Plato and Aristotle, didn't really care for that system. Uh, Aristotle is kind of mildly suspicious of it. Plato hates it. He calls it uh, just a step above tyranny, uh, and uh, he's very, very much against it. Uh, he talks about it in his, a few of his later dialogues, um, but really the one you're going to want to go to is the Republic, which is, is probably the most famous and, and most read of all his all his work. Second, only maybe to the Apology of Socrates, and that's just a maybe. Uh, as most people know, Plato uses the Republic to propose this idea of his perfect society, and his perfect society involves this series of guardians who rule absolutely, but who have no chance at all for corruption. I don't think they even get paid. Um, they're, they're just kind of taken care of. Everyone uh, in fact, else, they're not
2: allowed to own property.
0: Yeah, so they can't be corrupted. Everyone else, meanwhile, is assigned a role during childhood, and they have to perform these roles for the rest of their lives. There's no chance for advancement. And actually, if you read uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, or if you read Lois Lowry's The Giver, I think you're going to see societies that are pretty close to the one described in a republic, and certainly it has much more in common with Nazi Germany or the USSR than it does with American capitalist democracy. Am I misrepresenting that in any way?
2: Oh, I think that those are definitely sort of bleak and suspicious takes on it, but yeah, I mean, certainly it bears more resemblance to that than it does to what we think of as democracy.
0: Yeah, so after he presents this perfect society, which unrecognizable to us, I would suspect, uh, he spends hmm. a couple of chapters talking about why other systems of government are bunk. And he talks about four of them. He talks about democracy, oligarchy, democracy, and tyranny. And those are in descending order uh, of his preference. So democracy is what you might call an aristocracy. It's ruled by the very best in society. And the big problem with it is that people being stupid naturally confuse being good at what you do with having a lot of money. So, I mean, <laughs> we know this is true in our own day. <laughs> but the problem with that is uh, that, that confusion slides society into an oligarchy, which is ruled by those who have money. And I would argue, actually, that the society we live in is probably more of an oligarchy than it is a democracy. Although I think it's, you're right it's in the best interest of those who govern us to pretend that it's a democracy. But the government really is controlled by lobbyists for large organizations, corporations, Walmart, and focus on the family, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if we each get a vote, um, I'd still say we're we're still closer to oligarchy than democracy. And that's the closest you're going to get to a screaming jack. But <laughs> Plato's problem with oligarchy is something I think that sociologists are already starting to notice in our society, which is you get a huge split between the upper and lower classes, between the halves and the have-nots, and there ends up being a lot more have-nots than haves. And so the common folks get together, often under a populist leader, and try to overthrow the government. And I'm sure I don't have to mention where you can see the seeds of this in our society. <laughs> and the problem, again, is that Plato doesn't have much respect for the masses, and he figures that they're usually going to elect an idiot, or worse, um, or, or worse, someone who's going to, to rule them with an iron fist and that's how democracy slides into tyranny now there are some people who have argued that Plato's not talking about politics at all in the Republic that his ideal Republic is a metaphor for the soul and that we shouldn't take it literally as political theory I gotta say that I find that argument rather unconvincing certainly Plato wants to apply his theory to the human soul as well but I think what he's doing is setting up the kind of microcosm macrocosm that was popular in ancient Greek thought What's good for the state is good for the individual as well. But I, I do think he saw that as a viable political system. Uh, do you guys disagree?
2: Which one? Which one is that? I think
0: he saw his republic with the guardians and whatnot as oh, a okay, okay. viable political system. I, I don't. I don't think the Republic, the book, the Republic, is primarily a metaphor for uh, the upkeep of the individual soul.
3: I heard a lecture once by John Mark Reynolds that argued that, that those particular aspects of uh, Plato's Republic are in some way a con that he's pulling on you, like a trap that he's luring in you, but it's been so long since I heard that that that's the only aspect of, of his argument that I remember. So, um, Which is interesting because
0: yeah. Reynolds is so... Uh not a fan of democracy himself. I mean, he, as far as I know, he would like it if the U.S. were a monarchy. And I'm not putting words in his mouth. That's his Facebook's Facebook political beliefs, monarchist. So it's weird that he would defend uh, Plato on on those charges.
3: Well, he was talking about um, things like the exclusion of of poets Uh, from the perfect republic and things like that.
0: Because that's another interesting thing about the Republic is that he he doesn't like poetry. He doesn't like poets. And yet, from from time immemorial, poets have claimed Plato as one of their own, which he is. I mean, he is a poet. The way he writes mm-hmm. is, is much closer to fiction than it is to to what we would think of as philosophical treatise. But that's kind of off, off topic.
2: Right. A, well, yeah. and also, to be fair, you know, when he goes after democracy, he goes after it with his teeth bared with his weapons drawn, when he goes after poetry, he ends that section with an invitation to the reader, please come up with some kind of argument for poetry for me.
3: (laughs) It's a a little more open-ended there. Like he wants to be convinced, maybe.
2: Well, or like he's already got the argument ready, but he wants those who are reading to come up with it themselves. He is a teacher, after all.
3: Ah, yes.
2: That's how I tend to teach it when I teach it to undergraduates, but... Your undergraduates
0: probably don't need any convincing that poets should be excluded,
2: right? <laughs> <laughs> That's true enough. <laughs> oh, shoot. Well, at any rate, you know, Michael, you're, you're mentioning, you know, poets in later ages. I mean, to continue that adventure into the Christian era, one of the early Christian figures that holds up Plato as an intellectual influence and to and he he critiques the content of his philosophy. We're talking about Augustine, of course. Uh, David, I mean, what are the points of content in both directions—the critiques and the influences—and mm. what do you think we moderns could learn from the way that Augustine relates to Plato? <laughs>
3: um.
2: Now, is is Augustine also in the basement?
3: No, Augustine's not in the basement. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> I am I'm, I'm just trying to think where to start. Um I'll start with the confessions. Uh when uh, Augustine is describing uh all of the various philosophical and religious options that he um he tried out on his way, you know, on his way down the, the buffet, um up until he found Christianity and thought, Hey, this this is just right as uh, you know, Goldilocks said. Um he talks about Plato, and uh, in his in his sort of one sided uh, conversation with God, he he thanks God that he found Plato because uh, in Plato he 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 saw someone pointing beyond the world to something that is uh, uh, ineffable, something eternal, um, and that's where. Being and truth and goodness find their root. And that was very compelling. So he found that ineffability uh, very uh, very attractive. It seemed it seemed to answer a lot of the questions that he had. Um, but then he encountered the Christian scriptures and he seemed to be finding in them, the same kinds of truth about God, that God is where being comes from, that God is where truth comes from, that ultimate goodness is found in God, in uh an infinite and unchangeable God, where where all of these things can be anchored. And uh he you know he 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 claims in the confessions that uh Plato was was the first one that kind of put that put the desire for that particular um, that particular uh, kind of God uh, in his heart and then he found that God uh, he says when in in reading the Hebrew Scriptures um, also uh, the book of Romans he refers to now the critique comes uh, and and in in the uh, in the city of God, he's got a rather extended um, evaluation of uh, Plato and the Platonists, Book Eight, um, and he claims that actually that that the Platonists are the closest to the Christians. Therefore, any kind of fruitful discussion between philosophy and Christianity is going to be a conversation between. Uh, Is going to be a conversation with the Platonists because it's a waste of time to talk to all those other guys who are hung up on atoms and stuff. Um, you know, talk to the Platonists. Now, Augustine's dissatisfaction with Plato uh, came in uh, in the fact that Plato seems to be setting up this disjunct between... Uh, this mutable material world and this immutable world of eternal things, and there's not really any way to resolve these separated realities. Um, what uh, what you find in Book 7 of, uh, of the Confessions is Augustine discovering the notion of the Logos made flesh, the Word made flesh at the beginning of John, as the resolution to, to the problem of Plato's idealism, of the relationship between the material and the ideal and how do we bridge this gap. Um, for Augustine, the fact that the word, the wisdom of God um, could enter materiality and then bridge that gap, um, heal the disjunct between uh, the, the broken mutable world that we have that seems so far off from the perfection of uh, of God's ideal wisdom and goodness and being um, and the way He does that uh, is uh, through the incarnation through the cross and through the resurrection um, so for for Augustine that's where Plato fell short That he couldn't anticipate God's work to resolve the division uh, which is which is in the incarnation it's in the cross and it's in the defeat of death um that comes with the resurrection so
0: but david i would say that augustine is still fairly uncomfortable with the material world wouldn't you um, like this is kind of the worst the worst thing about his influence on the western church is his general distrust of the
3: body see if I would I would argue that yes he does he isn't particularly cool with the material world as it is now but if you read his descriptions of in city of god where he's speculating about what was it like to be an embodied human before the fall he's actually pretty positive about that but he's able to be positive
0: about that because it's so theoretical when it, when it comes to actually embracing the material world which is plato's i mean really big failure i think and it becomes augustine's big failure because all he can embrace is a material world that he can he can point to but not uh but not see just like just like the world of ideas
2: i Perhaps. I think when it comes to the confessions, you're absolutely right michael i I agree with david though that when by the time you get over to City of God, there's a definite turn in his theology, and i mean the the moment that I remember most clearly from City of God is a moment where he says ultimately, we have to reject Plato because he hates the material, because mm-hmm. after all, God created the world, looked at it, and said, it is good. So therefore, as Christians, we have to look at matter and say, it is good.
0: So the, mm-hmm. the problem the problem with Augustine is not so much what he actually thought at the end of his life as the only thing anybody reads is the Confessions. And so <laughs> well, that, kind of- I mean,
2: what, what had the most influence, I think, on a lot of medieval christianity you know especially a lot of the monastic writings that have just this queasy relationship with the body uh yeah i, th- I think it's definitely more of an influence than city of god is
0: but i think that's, that's straight on through yeah. to american evangelicalism You, you never at least growing up i never heard anything about the body being resurrected at the end of time it was always when our souls go to heaven and when I figured out that that was not the end game, that the the end game is the the physical resurrection, and that the the rest was a just complete, really a, a complete rejection of the material world, I, I felt duped.
3: Hmm. Well, I I, w- I would say, you know, I, I'm going to be the apologist for Augustine a little bit, and say that one of the big concerns in the Confession is his wrestling with his own consciousness of his own sinfulness. Um, He was, you know, he by by his own testimony, uh, he was very wrapped up in the sins of the flesh. Okay, Uh, leading even right up into his conversion, and the fact that he he knew that he was who he was not so good as he ought to be, and in fact didn't even really have enough desire to to make him to make himself stop. He's like, you know, give me chastity, but give it to me tomorrow. Yeah. Um,
2: Another that, famous line from Augustine.
3: Right. That uh, in in the passage that I, that I reviewed, um, where he talks about the word being made flesh, what he goes on to emphasize is, the great thing about this is that it solves my sin. And for him, because his sin, his own personal sins were so much about things that he did with things that he did with and to his body I think Mm -hmm. it's very difficult for him personally to abstract those things
2: that's interesting I mean you know I I think Augustine is definitely one of those theologians where the biography and the content of the theology are very tightly wound together
0: and I don't trust theologians but that's not true
2: no that's fair enough that's fair enough
3: (coughs) sorry I, I think C.S. Lewis is actually pretty good to parallel here because if you read if you read his biography, um, he doesn't seem as caught up in – I think in material flesh stuff. He's much more concerned with sins of ideas and his own personal pride and intellectual arrogance and things like that. You see him much more wrestling with those things and so he ends up with an emphasis in his own spiritual biography – that's not as, as body problematic as Augustine says.
0: Well, so. and he, he enjoys the physical world more, I dare say, than most American evangelicals, right? I mean, he, he, <laughs> he loves his pipe. He, they, I, I heard a story he about how... He loves his they, ale. Yeah, so, I mean, certainly he's more comfortable with the, with the physical world than Augustine was. But, I mean, who's to say Augustine wasn't right? I'm sure we could all stand to be a lot more ascetic than we are. Mm-hmm. And I, I certainly don't want to put uh, put Augustine down, but I I do think I do think the the distrust you find of the of the material world, in in the Confessions, is uh, is is the source of some problems with Christianity from then on, from Christ- Christendom mm-hmm. I should say rather than Christianity.
2: I th- I think right. that's a fair assertion.
3: Though I'd blame Paul a bit too, frankly.
2: You you who do will? what now?
3: I said though I'd blame Paul a little bit too. Who will rid me of this body of death?
0: It's true, it's true. I mean there's, there's there's definitely some some echoes of Plato in in the writings of paul. I mean there's no there's no question about that.
2: certainly. well, Michael, I, I want to backtrack a little bit before we move on in further into the Christian era and return to c. s. Lewis. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was the the idea in Plato's scholarship uh, that you've got a progression in Plato's thought where early on in his career you've got largely dialogues that are Socrates material. In other words, it's pretty much a replication of his great teacher, Socrates. Uh, But later on, you get a progression into original thought on Plato's part. In your own readings, I mean, what arguments have people given for that kind of progression? And I mean, what kind of credence do you lend it?
0: Well, I mean... There is undoubtedly a clear and distinct difference between the early dialogues and the later ones. You don't need any training to find that, I don't think. The difference is that the early dialogues are are much easier to read and much easier to understand. (laughs) The later ones deal with much heavier and more abstract issues. So if you want the most obvious difference, um, look at the difference between the Apology of Socrates, which I think almost anybody could read, and then look at the late dialogue the Timaeus which is so difficult to understand that you may as well call it a work of mystical poetry and leave it at that. Mm-hmm. I mean, so the difference, the difference, I think, is undebatable. There is a huge difference between his early writings and his later writings. Now, some scholars have certainly suggested that the early dialogues reflect the genuine opinions of the historical Socrates, and that the later dialogues are just using Socrates as a fictional character who expresses Plato's views. And we should point out that there are a few dialogues that don't even have Socrates in them. They just right, have, most I think,
2: famously the Laws.
0: Yeah, I think he's just called the stranger in the Laws, isn't he?
2: Well, yeah, there is a figure <laughs> called the Stranger, and folks generally say that must be Socrates.
3: It's it's,
0: it's the Socrates stand-in. It's it's what it's right. what's there instead of somebody named Socrates.
2: The Smoking Man.
3: Yeah, I like to think that it's like you know Clint Eastwood, you know, with a with you know like from the Man with No Name trilogy.
0: Well, see, I just have to figure it's uh, the guy from La Tranger. He's gonna kill <laughs> an Arab on the beach. Anyway, oh. I, it's beyond my pay grade to weigh in on whether. Whether the early dialogues of historical Socrates or not, if you guys or one of our listeners has an informed opinion on that matter, I'd love to hear it. But I do do have one suggestion. Um, I think the most interesting depiction of Socrates outside of Plato comes in the Aristophanes' play The Clouds, which portrays... Mm. It's a comedy, and it portrays Socrates as this greedy, cynical ruler of an academy, and he just takes students' money to teach them how to argue literally anything. So, in other words, it portrays him the way Plato portrays the so-called Sophist or sophists in the dialogues. Um, my own experience in reading Plato makes me sympathize with Aristophanes. I should say that I took a very, very long year and a half and read through just about every dialogue in what they say is chronological order. So I didn't make it through them all. I, I gave up on the laws, for example, after two books. <laughs> But I did read most of them, and and as I read more and more of Plato's Socrates, I thought of him more and more as a sophist, um, less concerned with truth than with being right. And if you read a lot of those dialogues in a row, you, you don't wonder why Athens put him, put him to death. He's, he's kind of a jerk, really. He's, he's full of himself and he's unpleasant. And at times it really does seem like he's willing to teach people to argue literally anything that will make them sound right. So I think Aristophanes would have been writing about the historical Socrates and not about Plato's dialogues because the clouds premiered when Plato was like five years old. So there's no way Plato's dialogues were an influence on Aristophanes. So that the Socrates in Plato's later dialogues comes off like a bit of a sophist and thus corresponds to Aristophanes' depiction of the historical Socrates in certain ways, I think that that suggests that the Socrates of the later dialogues may be closer to the historical man than scholars have traditionally thought. But as I said, I am not an expert and I welcome your thoughts on this.
2: Yeah, I mean, I honestly, Michael, that's why I wanted you to talk on this a little bit, because you actually have done a little bit more of the actual historical reading than I have. I mainly use Plato as a tool to get students to write interesting papers for freshman comp. You've actually studied him. Well, let's go back modern for a minute here. One of my own favorite modern mentions of Plato is uh, from Professor Diggory in C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, the last book in The Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, as I remember it, he decries the modern state of education for, peeping, <laughs> for keeping people from even admitting the possibility of realities like Narnia. Uh, and at one point, he mutters under his breath, it's all in Plato, it's all in Plato. Uh, David, I mean, talk a little bit about how Plato plays out in these children's books and other C.S. Lewis books. Uh, even if our listeners know about C.S. Lewis's Platonism, they deserve to be reminded. Go to town.
3: Right up. Um, that particular moment, uh, if I recall from the last battle, is when they have uh, – the, the heroes have passed through uh, a stable and instead of finding in the inside of a stable when they go into the stable door, they actually find a whole other world, which uh, is amazing and bright and beautiful. But as they begin looking around, they realize that they recognize landmarks. And this is like the Narnia that they just left, but different. It's it's bigger, more beautiful, almost uh, um, you know, as, as as if you took a photograph and and increased the 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 contrast. Um, it, everything there is just much more than it had been, but still recognizably Narnia. And they're trying to make sense of this. Uh, at which point. Um, they reach uh they reach the realization that in fact this is narnia. Except the Narnia that they knew was just the shadow Narnia. What they've just entered is the real Narnia. It's it's the the awesome reality of which the other had just been um a reflection, a beautiful reflection, a reflection which uh which had enough of the real it, it had enough of the real Narnia in it to attract their love and attract their admiration. But what they really loved in the old Narnia was the ways that it reflected the, the real Narnia which they just come into. Uh, and the real Narnia is actually Aslan's country, um, the, the place where Aslan comes from, not the place where Aslan comes to, which in the Narnia books, even though Aslan is the king of all kings of Narnia, um, Narnia is a place that he visits. He doesn't always live there. Um, but the real Narnia is where he comes from.
2: Right, and if I remember right, David, don't you get a glimpse of that at the end of the uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader and then again at the outset of the Silver Chair?
3: Yes. Yeah, there's,
2: okay, all right. I thought I remembered that.
3: There are other visits or or glimpses of Aslan's country, but the, the platonic notion of the relationship between um, – real ultimate Narnia and Narnia in the Shadowlands uh is isn't really uh, isn't really laid out properly until um until the last battle. In that moment in the last battle. And that's when Diggory, Turk, uh, Diggory Kirk munders uh, under his breath. Uh it's all in play
0: I mean Lewis
2: Michael go
0: Lewis ahead Lewis obviously admired at least I mean, he he was obviously a Platonist, because you've also got that bit in The <laughs> oh, Great yeah. Divorce with the blades of heaven's grass cutting people's feet like diamonds. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's a Platonic image as well. I'm sure if we looked more closely, it would be throughout his uh, fictional um, corpus.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I would say it's in, in his apologetic works, too, because, I mean, the outset of mere Christianity, of course, begins with that uh, famous story of the two schoolboys in the schoolyard arguing over the fairness of something. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he insists on is that they are appealing to some transcendent fairness, uh, that can't be located simply within their squabble.
3: Right. Well, I mean,
0: all of us who believe that the spiritual world is somehow realer or more important than the, uh, the, the physical world are, are in some sense Platonists anyway. So,
2: Right. Although there are independent traditions that develop that same idea. And I'm thinking specifically of the later chapters of Exodus, Mm -hmm. uh, where the plans for the tabernacle and later the Jerusalem temple are revealed to Moses as having existed in the heavens before they're built in Jerusalem. So, I mean, I I definitely think those two traditions, when they find each other, you know, I think this is where C.S. Lewis is absolutely right, you know, uh, they kind of look at each other and say, "Hey, we've been thinking the same thought. Mm-hmm. There must be something to this."
3: Well, that's actually what Augustine says in um, in City of God when he's evaluating Plato, uh, he, and and he actually comes to the conclusion that Plato could have only said some of the things that he said if he'd had access to the Pentateuch. Right. Um, which was actually a fairly common idea amongst early Christians that, that Plato or Socrates must have somehow met uh, met uh, a Hebrew from, you know, back in Judea who told him about Moses and what Moses said and uh, tried to kind of make sense of it in, in, in his own ways. Um, and Augustine also says that uh, that the conclusions that Plato comes to are are available in nature. And so mm-hmm. he opens he opens up the possibility that there could be finger quotes Platonists in any culture of the world where men have in sure. good faith looked at creation and deduced from that a a God who is beyond okay. it all, who provides the ground of being of truth and of goodness.
2: Right. Now of course as far as I can tell and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong there aren't I haven't found any references to the Jews in Greek antiquity you know for uh, them even
0: like Herodotus doesn't seem to know they exist he talks right about the for, for him
2: they would simply have been one of the tribes of the Persian Empire and of course right. the Persians are bad 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 to the Greeks
3: there's a reference in one of the books of Maccabees claiming that some a uh, Spartan king or other sent a letter to really, the, I, the I, Hebrews I claiming relationship to them. Okay, but, but I think in my recollection, it's one of those later books of the Maccabees, which is so, which is much more obviously made up, right? Than, than the first book of Maccabees, <laughs> which with apologies is apologies to our Catholic readers, which is pretty straight history.
2: Although the later um, books of Maccabees aren't in the Catholic Bible either, with apologies
0: right. to our heretical uh, readers. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Michael you are the eternal diplomat <laughs> <laughs> anyway <laughs> oh shoot uh, I, I thought
3: of I'd also thought of one thing um, okay. back to Narnia mm-hmm. which uh, when Lucy comes back and, te- and, and tells the others about her experience in Narnia
2: this is Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe
3: in the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe um, I thought of the parable of the cavern and uh, when when you asked when I saw that that you were asking me this question, uh, I th- I, th- I thought about that moment, and that's actually mm. another moment when Professor Kirk I don't think he asks I don't think he deplores uh, the lack of Plato in education.
2: No, he doesn't. I looked that up, but
3: he deplores the lack of logic. Yes, but um, but still I think there's a, there's that moment that seems to me patterned on. Uh, what happens when someone leaves the cave and then comes back in and tells. Oh, what, that's interesting. What, I hadn't what, thought what of that What can we say about them? Anyway.
0: There's also, um, and I know we're just, we're, now we're just finding Plato everywhere we can, but there's also <laughs> that book you like so much, Nathan, Flatland, which is, I mean, very clearly yeah. a, a Platonist-type metaphor. Oh, sure, sure. Our dimension, the physical dimension, is actually just an aspect of a larger set of dimensions. Mm -hmm. Right, although what's
2: interesting about that is that the inhabitant of Flatland actually expands the consciousness of the sphere by saying ah, there's the possibility then for a fourth dimension and a fifth, and he lays out the math for it, and what's interesting is at first the sphere resists that idea and he says there's no way there could be a fourth dimension, but eventually he repents and says, you know, I'm supposed to be the one teaching you here, but you've taught me so I mean, it's a wonderful little moment in that book
0: Mm-hmm. now the now the teacher has become the student
2: <laughs> <Indeed>. <laughs> oh man well Michael I'd, to stay in the modern era and to stay with C.S. Lewis actually uh, one reality that strikes me odd at first but on some level makes perfect sense uh, is that Plato who in his day was among the most radical of thinkers and writers uh, has been embraced by modern era conservatives as various as C.S. Lewis, Richard Weaver, Alan Bloom in his book, The Closing of the American Mind. Uh, I mean, in his day, he wanted to tear down everything and start from scratch. Why is it that conservatives love him so, Michael?
0: Well, I mean, as you know, what's radical in one age becomes conservative in the next. And the same thing happened to John Locke and Thomas Jefferson and everybody else who's ever been a political radical. But I... I, I, (laughs) You know, I do think part of the appeal to of Plato to conservative thinkers is that he's ancient, and there's a tendency in circles like that, right or wrong, to equate being ancient with being good. And I I think you you guys and and I we all have that tendency as well. Um, I think also the distrust of democracy pretty obviously favors into their attraction as well. Classical conservatives are not known for their staunch faith in majority rule, even if even if you know their libertarian descendants are. So it it makes sense that they'd share some of those. Basic misgivings about a strict democracy that that Plato has. Um, I think Plato enjoyed a renaissance in the middle of the 20th century because his thought was so opposed to the analytic philosophy that was kind of in charge of the Mm. departments of the day. Okay. Uh, Plato, for always concerned with logic and mathematics, is is kind of a mystic and he doesn't really mesh well with the Bertrand Russells of the world uh, to to whom, you know, Lewis and Weaver and. my folks were also uh, very much opposed. Uh, he's Farm, also
2: con- farmers' he, folks, being the new agrarians in America,
0: and the existentialist as well.
2: And the oh yeah, that too. Go ahead.
0: He's also convinced of the absolute nature of truth, which would put him at odds with uh, uh, with secular uh, existentialists anyway. But uh, he, mm-hmm. he's convinced of the absolute nature of truth, and that makes him a natural attraction for religious people who live in an age of pluralism. Uh, mm-hmm. Truth, truth for Plato, is that which conforms to a heavenly image of the thing. It's not. It's not much of a jump from there to truth being what conforms to the nature of God, and so Christian conservatives, in particular, have latched onto Plato almost since the beginning of Christianity. We have to note that Bloom is not interested in that sort of reading of Plato. He wants to make Plato back into a pagan philosopher. He's not interested in yeah. Christian Neoplatonism, but he is—he is a conservative of of a sorts. He—he he always denied that, you know. He didn't like being called a conservative.
2: Oh, and see, I didn't know that. Yeah,
0: no, he did not. He was a registered Democrat. Uh-huh. He, uh, he did not think of himself as a conservative.
2: Everybody well, else does. I
0: mean, and I would not argue that he, he is a conservative, whether he wants to be one or not.
2: Right. <laughs> well, I mean, that that's one of the things that fascinated me. You know, I, I finally got around to reading that book, uh, The Closing of the American Mind, just a few years ago. And, you know, what struck me as fascinating was, you know, here in the middle of a semester where I was teaching Plato's Republic to UGA undergrads, I read the story of, you know, Alan Bloom faced with the student riots of the late 60s, and his response is to gather a group of disciples around him and teach them Plato's Republic. (laughs) And I, you know, it just kind of blew my mind that, you know, again, Plato, who as far as I can tell, was all about tearing things down and starting from scratch. Bloom appeals to him as someone who can maintain I guess the community of the university, for lack of a better phrase.
0: But I mean, this is why labels like conservative and liberal don't tend to be helpful past the fifty-year point, right? I mean, because uh-huh. what's conservative in one day in one society is going to be different than what's conservative now and here, because right. conservative just means you want things to stay the way they are, and liberal means you want things to to progress. So, although
2: right. I, I guess what I'm thinking of is I'm mean, conservative <laughs> as a larger. Phenomenon generally prefers gradual change, you know, adherence to tradition, you know, working within systems, right? I mean, are those valid descriptors?
0: Sure, but what I'm saying is, Plato would have started out as a radical, but uh-huh. as things progressed, he is the way things are. I mean, his Republic didn't come to grace. <laughs> okay, okay, but, or to, to come to, to come to fruition, but I, I mean we live uh you know plato is our intellectual history thus he he's not the status quo exactly but he is what we would be conservative of you see what okay, i
2: mean okay I, I think i see your point i think that I makes see your sense
3: point. now uh, i th- i think i mean you, you i mean yeah plato plato was radical but the ra- the radicalism of plato was to look at his culture and say we do our reasons for doing things, our ideas of justice, um, are are rootless and specious and founded only in our own private notions of what is preferable or what is traditional, and aren't aren't rooted in something that is deeply and stably true. Yes, and I yeah, think, I can see that. And I think that's something that 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 conservatives find very compelling is they they want to base society on something that they see as really permanent really stable and really true in itself and not not only relatively um now we can wrangle about the decisions on which things they decide are those stable true anchor points but still I think that's um that's that's a deep desire, and it's and it's something that Plato Plato shared, and so and so we can look at um, at least you know I as a conservative look at Plato and see him as operating in common cause with me of wanting to to found a society on something other than mere preference or mere expedience or or whatever. Well, that, right.
0: that's probably the best thing about what we would call conservatism, right? That's the, that's the thing I find most admirable about them.
3: Right. And I find well, other things right.
0: admirable about liberals.
3: Well, but then I think, I think what we're doing is we're quibbling over which decisions we're going to, or, or which principles we're going to choose as our foundations and which is our anchors. Right.
0: I'm, I, I'm sure there are people, and I think we've, we've all met them in graduate school in English, there are people who don't <laughs> believe there are any such principles to, to, to found a society on. Oh, well, sure,
2: and then they hold up yeah. the sofas as their heroes.
3: Well, I was... I was. The, no no the names very, necessary. Yeah. <laughs> the very first semester that I was here at UGA, I went out um, after uh, freshman orientation uh, out downtown with various other students. And a fellow went along who was uh, a professor in the classics department. I, th- I think he was just there on like a one-year fellowship or something like that. Um and the conversation turned to which Greeks have we read, because that was that was his thing. He 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 did Greek authors, and I said I'd read Plato, and quite enjoyed him. Um, at which point, this classics professor, this very fresh classics Ph.D., who's probably only had about you know maybe five or six years on me, looked me straight in the eye with an absolute straight face, said, "Fascist." Which, he might have been joking.
0: He knows you so well, and he's never even met you.
3: I know, maybe like <laughs> half-joking, but yeah, I like, wow. I like I like Plato equals fascist. And and but he then goes on conservative
0: to... equals fascist, right? I mean, John Mark Reynolds talks about that, too, about how if you're conservative on the internet and people don't like it, that's the first word they pull out, just like if you're liberal, they pull out That socialist. is true.
3: That is true, yeah. A,
0: they're, they're almost meaningless words.
3: Yeah, well, it, it is an almost meaningless word. But then he went on to talk about how much he loved the sophists and their their culturally situated view of uh, and pragmatic view of truth. And you know, as long as it works in an argument, it's sweet. Um, which I, I wonder if I he feels like, the
0: same way about his contract.
3: I don't <laughs> know, but uh, but yeah, I, I was like, yeah, okay, so I'm a fascist because because I like Plato and have, and happen to rather like the notion that something out there is actually true for its own sake. I don't know. All
2: oh. right, I can grant at least let me take one more stab at this and then I'll let the dead horse lie without beating it further. But <laughs> I guess what I think of as conservatism in classical Athens is Aristotle, I mean, whose Nicomachean Ethics starts with, all right, let's look at the actual organization of athenian society Mm -hmm. and let's deduce what is good based on that i mean i guess that's why i still want to hold on to that designation of plato as a radical because he says let's throw all that out let's start with an ideal of good cooked up in the same way we would cook up a mathematical theorem and then let's judge everything based on that mathematical theorem Mm -hmm. now I, i think that that's one valid way of proceeding but it's not what i would call conservative i would call aristotle's approach you know, let's look at what courage looks like in Athens and then judge what courage is. I would call that more conservative. All right. That, that's all I'm going to say on that. I, I realize I'm beating <laughs> the dead at this point, as I tend to do um, now. Yeah. I, <laughs> I have such trouble letting things lie. Um, well, obviously we haven't treated Plato's own corpus or his influence Uh, or anything about Plato, really, with anything approaching a comprehensive history. That's
0: because we're not Uh, four semesters of graduate school.
2: That's true. Seriously. (laughs) But now that we've given our listeners something of a taste of old flathead, and by the way, uh, if you ever notice that Plato's name and the French word plateau are similar, uh, it's because Plato was a nickname people put on him because he had a flathead.
0: Oh, that's cool! I didn't know that.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to go around the horn here at the end, and I mean, this brief history that we've given, I mean, what do you think that it has to say to the Christian intellectual life, to Christian humanism, what we are most interested in? In other words, since we live as Christians in a world that also has Plato in it, how then should we live? David, I want to give you first crack at this.
3: Ooh. Um, I think the... The first way that we can live as Christians in a world with Plato is to realize um, is to embrace, I think, Plato's value as as a, a stepping stone towards um, towards biblical uh, uh, biblical truth uh, about God. Um, I, and I would refer back to the Confessions and look at you know, what led Augustine to accept intellectually the notions of scripture, which previously he had rejected as kind of the childish things that he learned, um, you know, when, when, you know, sent by his mother to be catechized. And he rejected that as, you know, that was all just little boy stuff. But later on, post-Plato, suddenly it seems more compelling. Um, and I think we can... Uh, we can think of it in the same way. Um, I don't want to do... Uh, I don't want to undertake the project of uh, some of the, you know, the late classical and medieval Neoplatonists and try to make everything that Plato said fit together with scripture. Um, you know, I think... Uh, let, let's abandon that at the outset. But um, I, I think it is good to to acknowledge that... Uh, in the big conversation, the big intellectual conversation of our world, that there's a fellow in a toga who's saying a lot of things we can nod our heads along with and and that that can be very useful um, both in attempting to share the gospel of the Word made flesh who's come to resolve uh, the disconnect between uh, the holy God and the unholy world um, and also, as as Christians trying to to think out, what exactly do we believe? What are its repercussions in our lives,
2: Michael? That's, oh, I'm sorry. I, I I thought you were done. That was just a a yeah. rubsian and pause.
3: Well, I was just going to finish <laughs> with, and that's where I'm going to leave it.
2: <laughs> All right. <laughs> I jumped the gun, but now Michael proceed (laughs) well
0: my advice is to be careful david talked about this a little bit but i'm going to talk about it again there's been a tendency throughout christian history to see socrates as presented in the platonic dialogues as a sort of precursor to christianity i've heard Mm -hmm. people say that if plato had been around after christ he certainly would have been a christian and i'm not so sure about that there's a lot Mm -hmm. in platonic thought that doesn't mesh terribly well with christian thought i talked about the neglect of the physical world but Also, Plato's Socrates strikes me as a very cynical atheist. You see him in the Republican making up a system of myths in order to control his society's populace. Those of us who believe in an actual impersonal God should not cease being offended by a tactic like that one. And and there are a lot of other things about Plato's philosophies that just don't mix with Christianity, although, of course, there are parallels that we've talked about as well. So... Read Plato by all means, and I do think that everyone with the slightest tendency toward intellectualism needs to at least read the Republic and the Apology. But you need to read him critically, and don't confuse him with Christianity, even though so many historical Christians have done so. Take what's good in his thought and leave behind what's not good the way you would with any other thinker, and always read him through Scripture rather than reading Scripture through him. And uh, also, finally... Don't be afraid to get angry at Socrates. I'm not sure if we're supposed to or not, but if you don't want to break his teeth at the end of a few of those dialogues, you're not reading closely enough.
2: Well, you guys have taken the extremes away from me. I don't know where I'm going to land.
0: In the middle, like normal?
2: No, usually you land in the middle, Michael. Usually it's me and Grubbs on the... Extremes, and you get to be our voice of reason. But you guys have taken that away from me. I don't know what to do. Uh, I, I, I will say, you along just need with, to go
0: I, even further.
2: <laughs> I, I don't know you which way to go. You need to
0: say that Jesus Christ was a second incarnation of the Platonic Socrates, or or, <laughs> or what
3: that, has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, you you need to go one or two of those ways. One of anyway, I, I clearly said that sentence wrong.
2: Um, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that we've seen in Augustine and we've seen, uh, in Lewis is this idea that, you know, Christianity is something that does stand over against Plato and his system. But on the other hand, you know, that Plato wouldn't have the appeal that Plato has unless there were some kind of truth in there. And, you know, I, I think I will probably land closer to Michael on this that, you know, there has to be something there for it to appeal to people uh but that very appeal can tempt us to bend christianity towards plato in ways that are dangerous you know like i said i tend to be an aristotelian myself but even there you know obviously there are doctrines within aristotle that i'm going to have to say no to because of the revelation of god in scripture and i think that category of revelation is eventually where i want to land on this um mainly because you know, one of the things that we have to hold on to as Christians that simply wasn't a category in Platonic and Aristotelian thought uh, is this idea that what we know about God is not deduced, but it is given. It is a gift to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, Walter Brueggemann, the the Old Testament theologian, uh, has a wonderful phrase that I'm probably going to write about on the blog sometime soon. Uh, he calls various moments in the Old Testament that shake-up theological systems. He refers to, the, to each one of those as a theological datum or theological datum, uh, something that is given and that does exert a disruptive influence, but nonetheless cannot be excised because we believe in a God who reveals God's self. And, you know, that, that's one of those things that I think is a challenge to all sorts of systematic philosophies and theologies, but especially that of Plato, well, anyway, guys, I mean, uh, hopefully our listeners won't be able to tell because Michael is an engineering genius. Uh, but we've had some technical difficulties with this episode. Uh, nonetheless, I think it was a good conversation. I think we've done some good things here. Uh, Michael, David, I want to thank both of you for doing this. And I have to confess right now that I don't know which of you has next week's episode. I
0: do.
2: <laughs> All right. So, Michael, Me, do Michael we know?
0: Farmer.
2: Yeah, Farmer, uh, what are we doing next week?
0: We're going to talk about friendship.
2: Aww.
0: I assume we're all going to hug and cry, or as close to hugging as you can get on Skype.
2: Yeah, I was uh, going to say, since we're at minimum 30 minutes away from each other, that'd be actually. Different. You know
0: what? Uh, by the time the next episode airs, I'll actually be up in Athens, so maybe we can get together and cry about uh, about friendship. But yeah, we're we're There's talking that. about friendship in history and the Bible and uh, as a concept.
2: All right, very good. Uh, Well, Christian Humanist listeners, as you know, you can email us anytime you'd like at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can come and read our writings at christianhumanist.org slash chb. Uh, You can find an archive that I still haven't updated at christianhumanist.org slash chp. Uh, We thank you again for downloading and listening to this episode. And on behalf of David Grubbs, on behalf of Michael Farmer... This is Nathan Gilmore saying with Martin Luther, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger.